This presentation was prepared for release on April 14th, 2021. Greetings. This is Terry Noel Tao. And today, it's not going to be Bach on Wednesday. What it is going to be is a commemoration of events that took place on April 14th and April 15th. First of these is the death of George Frederick Handel. He died in his house on Brook Street in London on the morning of April 14th, 1759, which was Holy Saturday in 1759. Handel had hoped that he would die on Easter Sunday. He came pretty close. I thought under the circumstances that I would play in his memory on the anniversary of his death the oratorio Israel in Egypt the original 1739 version which is in three parts. The recording that I have chosen is one that seeks to recreate what happened at the premiere performance and it opens with part one the lamentations of the Israelites for the death of Joseph. Handel reworked the funeral anthem that he had composed for the obsequies for his friend and patron since they were children, Caroline of Brandenburg-Ansbach, the consort of King George II of England. The performers are the Sixteen and the orchestra of the Sixteen playing period instruments under the direction of the Sixteen's founder, Harry Christophers.
Thank you.
Part one of the original version of George Frederick Handel's oratorio, Israel in Egypt, which was first performed in the spring of 1739, April 4th, 1739, to be precise. Part one is called The Lamentations of the Israelites for the Death of Joseph. It is Handel's reworking of the anthem he wrote for the funeral of his longtime royal friend and patron, Caroline of Brandenburg-Ansbach, the consort of King George II of England. Part two was prefaced by an organ concerto. This in and of itself makes Israel in Egypt unusual for Handel because in almost all of the oratorios, the organ concerto, whatever concerto was performed, came before the third part. Each part is generally equal in length, except for the third part, which is about two-thirds as long as parts one and two, to allow for the performance of the organ concerto. It is almost certain, in fact, there can be little doubt that the organ concerto that was performed on the first night of Israel in Egypt, April 4th, 1739, was the organ concerto that nowadays is numbered 13. It's a concerto in F, Hindel Werke Verzeichnis, number 295. It's the concerto that bears the delightful nickname the Cuckoo and the Nightingale. One instantly realizes why when one hears the second movement. This concerto, by the way, is essentially an adaptation of the Concerto Grosso, the Grand Concerto number no. 9 from the Opus 6 of Handel, the 12 Grand Concertos. Some of the music is derived from the works of other composers, namely Giovanni Porta's Opera Numitore and Johann Kaspar Kerl's Capriccio Cuckoo. The Cuckoo in the Nightingale is also the first of Handel's organ concertos to require ad libitum improvisations. In this performance, these ad libitum passages are filled with movements from Handel's keyboard suite in F major, number two from the first set of suites 
that was published in 1720. In this performance, the organist, the wonderful Paul Nicholson, the orchestra of the Sixteen, playing period instruments, is conducted by the founder of the Sixteen, Harry Christophers. Thank you. 
George Frederick Handel, the organ concerto in F major, Handelwerkeverzeichnis number 295, the first concerto in the so-called second set, and a concerto that is largely an adaptation of the Grand Concerto number 9 from the 12 Grand Concertos that Handel published in 1739. There are two additional ad libitum movements which in this performance were provided by movements from the keyboard suite, the harpsichord suite number 2 in F major from the first set of suites, eight suites, which Handel published in 1720. The organist, the wonderful Paul Nicholson, the orchestra of the 16, playing period instruments, was conducted by Harry Christophers, the founder of the 16. Part 2 of Israel and Egypt that night, April 4th, 1739, may very well have been Ataka from that adagio that ended the organ concerto. There's no way of knowing for sure. Part two is a depiction of the Exodus. And shall we say, it's heavy on choruses, which turned out to be a problem in 1739. Part two opens with a recitative for tenor, with no introduction of any kind. That, of course, lends credence to the idea that it was a taka from the organ concerto. That is, that part two followed the organ concerto without a break. In this performance of part two, the Exodus, the soloists are Neil Mackenzie, tenor, and Caroline Trevor, contralto. The 16 and the orchestra of the 16 playing authentic instruments are conducted by Harry Christophers. Part 2 of Israel and Egypt, Exodus. Now there arose a new king over Egypt which knew not Joseph and he set over Israel taskmasters to afflict them with burdens and they made them serve with
Part 2 of the original version of George Frederick Handel's Israel in Egypt has premiered in London on April 4, 1739. The soloists were Carolyn Trevor, alto, and Neil Mackenzie, tenor. The Sixteen and the orchestra of the Sixteen, playing on authentic instruments, were conducted by Harry Christophers. Part three is the Song of Moses, and the soloists, all of whom, by the way, are members of the Sixteen, Nancy Jenkin and Sally Dunkley, sopranos, Carolyn Trevor, contralto, Neil Mackenzie, tenor, Robert Evans, and Simon Birchall, bass. Part three of the original 1739 premiere performance version of George Frederick Handel's Israel in Egypt, The Song of Moses.
Oh, <laughs> 
Part 3. The Song of Moses from George Friedrich Handel's Israel in Egypt. The version performed in London at the premiere of the Oratorio on April 4th, 1739. That performance was the only one at which the oratorio was given in the form that Handel initially intended. It was not well received. The audience was not used to so much chorus, one right after another. They wanted display pieces for singers, for instrumentalists, and for the succeeding performances, Handel obliged them. And when Israel in Egypt was revived in 1756, it was revised in a form that bore little resemblance to the original premiere performance version. The lamentations of the Israelites for the death of Joseph disparu. A new part one was coupled together from a variety of sources. And there were cuts in parts two and three. By 1756, Handel was blind and no longer actually directing the performances. That responsibility he had handed on to his amanuensis and pupil, John Christopher Smith the Younger, the son of Handel's lifelong friend and, in essence, business partner, Johann Christoph Schmidt, who, when he came to England, became John Christopher Smith. There was a revival in 1758. The version of Israel and Egypt performed on that occasion also bore little resemblance to the original premiere performance version, a part one that was cobbled together, cuts in parts two and three. It just wasn't a success in Handel's lifetime, and that is very sad. In 1771, Randall and Abel published Israel and Egypt, but just parts two and three. The Lamentations of the Israelites for the death of Joseph was not included. It was not considered original music for the oratorio. Not that that should have made a difference. The long and the short of it was the sad reality that Israel and Egypt became a two-part work that opened with a recitative. The rest, as the saying goes, is history. In that recording, which was made in March of 1993 at St. Jude's on the Hill, Hampstead, London, England,
you heard Nicola Jenkin and Sally Dunkley, sopranos, Caroline Trevor, contralto, Neil Mackenzie, tenor, Robert Evans, and Simon Birchall, basses. All of those soloists were members of the Sixteen. And the Sixteen and the orchestra of the Sixteen, playing on authentic instruments, were conducted by the founder of the Sixteen, Harry Christophers. With that performance, we have commemorated the anniversary of the death of George Frederick Handel. He died in his house on Brook Street in London, which is now a house museum, on April 14, 1759. On the evening of April 14, 1865, Abraham Lincoln, the 16th President of the United States of America, went to Ford's Theater with his wife, Mary Todd Lincoln. That was the night that he was shot in the back of the head by John Wilkes Booth. President Lincoln was carried across the street, made as comfortable as possible. The doctors looked after him, but his death was certain. He died the following morning, on April 15th, 1865. In memory of Abraham Lincoln, here is a performance of Aaron Copeland's Lincoln Portrait. This performance was recorded in concert for broadcast on August 5, 1976 at the Saratoga Performing Arts Center in Saratoga Springs, New York. The narrator is Marian Anderson. The conductor is the composer, Aaron Copeland.
escape history. We of this Congress and this administration will be remembered in spite of ourselves. No personal significance or insignificance can spare one or another of us. The fiery trial through which we pass will light us down in honor or dishonor to the latest generation. We, even we here, hold the power and bear the responsibility. master. 
this expresses my idea of democracy. Whatever differs from this, to the extent of the difference, is no democracy. Recorded in concert for later broadcast at the Saratoga Performing Arts Center in Saratoga Springs, New York, on August 5th, 1976, the bicentenary year. In memory of Abraham Lincoln, who was shot in the back of the head in Ford's Theater in Washington, D.C. on April 14, 1865 and died the next morning, April 15, 1965. Aaron Copeland, Lincoln Portrait The narrator, the great Marian Anderson, 
the Philadelphia Orchestra was conducted by the composer Aaron Copland. At 11.40 on the night of April 14, 1912, the RMS Titanic struck an iceberg and began to sink. The vessel slipped completely beneath the waves at 2.20 on the morning of April 15, 1912, with a tremendous loss of life. 1,507 people drowned or froze to death in the frigid waters of the Atlantic Ocean. I have been a Titanic maven since I was eight going on nine. I was taken to Europe by my parents in the spring of 1957. We went over and back on the SS United States and in the library I found a copy of A Night to Remember by Walter Lord which upon its publication in 1955 rejuvenated interest in that marine disaster. As the years went by, my interest did not diminish, and in the spring of 1972, shortly before the 60th anniversary of the sinking, I picked up the phone and I called a friend of my parents, who I had discovered just a few years before, because she didn't like to talk about it, had been a first-class passenger on the Titanic. I also knew that Margaret Graham Moore had never consented to an interview, but I decided to try. I asked her flat out, the response was, you know I won't do it, because nobody will agree to my conditions. I said to her, Mrs. Moore, you're not being fair. People didn't talk to Margaret Graham Moore that way. I did and got away with it. Why am I not being fair? I said, Mrs. Moore, how do you know? that I won't agree to your conditions until you tell me what they are. The conditions are two, she told me. One, you will not identify me for 25 years after I die. And two, if I ask you to take something out, you'll do it. I said, Mrs. Moore, I don't have a problem with either of those conditions. There was a silence. And then she said, 
you have me. And besides, I should have something to give to my grandchildren. Please meet me at my apartment on East 77th Street in New York next week, April 5th, at 3.30 in the afternoon. I could have had an audience with the Pope, and I would have canceled it. What you are about to hear is the edited version of that interview, and I am immensely grateful to my treasured friend, Alan S. Lisitsky, who digitized the original audio tape and did significant audio restoration for me. Mrs. Moore begins with the departure from Southampton, although she inadvertently calls it London. We had trouble in the first place getting out, getting, uh, getting away from the dock in London. Yes, as I we, remember, there was uh, nearly yeah, a collision. Yeah, we we pulled out. We pulled. We the suction pulled out. Uh, pulled out, and I was pulling out another ship that was tied up there. So we had a little delay and little trouble getting off. And I I don't know. Just as a as a light touch. I had a dog. I we I bought a dog in Paris, and you can't take dogs to England. So that the ship was we of course after after it was Southampton. Southampton, and then it went to Cherbourg. Then we went to yes. So anyways, they were putting the putting the dog on the plane on, on the on the uh, ship, and they, at, well, on their stop at in. Uh, Cherbourg. Yeah, Cherbourg. Well, anyway, for a couple of days, my, my dog just never appeared. And finally, about the second day out, or the third day, the chef came up to the to our stateroom and said, this is what we found with all the meat, crates of the meat. This poor dog was, <laughs> was all in, the, in with all the meat of the ship. So anyway, we we uh, so I I there were great many very fine dogs on board, and I met you know I take the dog for a walk and I met I think I'll skip that. Well anyway, when we knew there were icebergs, it was around five o'clock. Everybody was told, and when I went to bed, you could smell the icebergs. You could smell the icebergs. Oh, you could smell them. The dampness. Um, oh, I see what you mean. Sure. Yeah, you could smell the da uh, dampness in the air, obviously, and everybody knew there were icebergs. We were told that, but uh, so I went to bed. My mother and I had the same cabin. We went to we went to bed. And Miss Schutz was had a cabin somewhere else. You were in C ninety one, if I remember. I don't remember what cabin I was in, but but we I went to bed and I. Uh, very often, I guess I just decided I'd have a chicken sandwich, and that's where. And I was having a chicken sandwich, sitting up in bed, when we felt this. Uh, not not wasn't wasn't a strong 
It was just like a rowboat going over a little rock, you know. wasn't much of a of a scrape, just a little scraping. And then the engine stopped. And my mother said right away that we've hit an iceberg. And I said, oh, she was quite inclined to be quite nervous. And I said, oh, well, I don't think it is at all. And in fact, we saw a flash go by the, the portal. Well, she put on some clothes and went up to see what it was all about, up to one of the decks. And I, so I sat eating uh, my chicken sandwich. The door, door was left open. That, uh, that mother had left open. And so I was sitting there, just waiting for her to come back. And uh, the ship's, one of the ship's officers went by. I saw him go by the door, and the doctor, ship's doctor was, was um, had a room just a few doors down below where we were. And I heard the ship's officer pound on his door and say, whatever, I've forgotten his name. Doctor, doctor. Whatever. Uh, found it on his door and said, for God's sake, get up. We've hit an iceberg. Such and such a compartment doesn't, doesn't work. So, well, anyway, I thought, well, I guess I better, I guess I better think a little about what I'm going to do. Uh, well, anyway, I was just, I was still, I was just in the act of just, uh, I decided, well, it was, it was something that was fairly serious. So at that point, uh, a, a Mr. Roebling, Washington Roebling, he was the Roebling at the built the Brooklyn Bridge, uh, came came in, came down, and he had seen my mother up on deck, and he said he would come down to get to get me, to get to meet her on deck, and. Uh, so I, I, so I've just practically but put on a heavy tweed suit. It was quite a cold, cold night. And he said, "Ben, you better take your fur coat." And I just very facetiously said, "Well, I couldn't swim in a fur coat." <laughs> Being very facetious. And he said, "Well, it doesn't matter. You put on a fur coat." And so we, when we went up to where my mother was supposed to be, she wasn't there. So we spent. I don't know how long, quite a while, just going over the ship, looking for my mother. And orders were, there were very few people. The, the lights in the, in the corridors were very dim. There was no sound or no alarm, no nothing. And um, we went up into one of the gangways. There were a few, few of the, I suppose there were sailors that were stopping people and putting life preservers on. And the only person, the only person I saw that was a panicky in the whole thing was a, a Spanish lady that was on a wedding trip. She and her husband were in this corridor, and they were putting a life preserver on her. So I was going to ask you about her. What? I was going to ask you about her, if you had run into her. 
Yes, I did. Mrs. Sato de Depanasco, correct? I don't know what I happened. The yeah. vaguest idea. I don't even remember people's names, of my best friend's names, let alone that. But anyway, I did, yes, I did. We ran into her, and then uh, Mr. Roblek, of course, was an engineer, and he had been down. He'd gone down. He was traveling with another man, a friend of his. And... Um, so he'd gone down, and he realized the seriousness of, it, of the thing. He said he'd been below. This was during our walk around the ship, looking for my mother. And finally, we were told to go out on the promenade deck. Well, out on the promenade deck. There were very few people around, really. But there were, I suppose, maybe 50 people just milling around on the promenade deck. And I saw... Um, Colonel and Mrs. Astor, whom I knew and spoke to. And uh, then, so then, then another, uh, another uh, gentleman, that an Englishman that, that uh, knew was a friend of my brother-in-law's, it was on board, uh, came along and he followed it. He said, well, I think he joined me. By that time, I don't know where we met, but shoot somewhere. Probably on deck. I don't know where. I've forgotten that. But uh, anyway, so she went, sort of followed along, and I was with it. And finally, the Mr. Mr. they said, well, I think we, they practically gave up finding my mother. And then the, then the cha order was changed to go up to the boat deck. So, well, you couldn't possibly have gotten off that. that I'll tell you later about a remark. Later on, I'll, I'll go back to the boat deck because that was enclosed, of course. I mean, the promenade was enclosed. Well, anyway, we went up the boat deck and there my mother was. So uh, we, we got into a boat. I don't know. I suppose it must have been about, I don't know which boat it was. I imagine around the seventh boat or something. Boat number eight, according, according to Mr. Lord's a book you were and your mother were in boat number eight. Well, I wouldn't know what number boat I was in. in. And, uh, and an interesting fact that some of the people I'll, I'll put in later that I, th I thought, I think there were 36 people in our boat. But um, believe me, 36 people, I, in my opinion, feels a boat. Mm. They said they were supposed to take 72. But it seemed pretty crowded to me. And I sat, my mother was up in the bow, and I was down the stern right next to the... The... Uh, Teller? The navigator. Mm -hmm. the man, he was a stoker. Mm -hmm. And uh, so I'm being sort of just a young girl. And he talked to me, and we uh, people got... We had, uh, we had a couple of sailors who were using the oars. It was smooth bright, bright starlight night. And the ocean was smooth, fortunately, or we had nobody to be here. And uh, anyway, the, the, uh, we had a couple of sailors, I think, maybe even more, who were rowing. And uh, there were a couple of Frenchmen on, too, that were very quite sadistic. They wanted to stop. We were told that, that I talked to the our what do you call him, navigator? <laughs> I mean, the man that was uh, in charge of our boat. 
being right next to him. And he said, we were, they were told to push off, get away on account of suction. So we pushed away uh, as, as, fair, as fairly, I don't know how long we got, we, anyway, went away, from, went away from the ship. And you could see lights, the lights stayed on until the ship went really practically just completely emerged. They see layer after layer go, going down, and of course we could hear, you could hear the cries of the people. We weren't, we weren't near the people, but we could hear them. And of course these two Frenchmen wanted to be, everybody to be quiet so you could hear them instead of, well anyway, the, uh, so then people, we wanted, we were out there in the middle of the ocean with nobody. We didn't even see another lifeboat. So the idea was, you just, you know, you, I wasn't a bit frightened. I just thought the end had come. I mean, I didn't, I, I wasn't, I didn't have any sensation. The only sensation of fear that I had was going down in the lifeboat because it, they didn't know, which I, I will tell you later. Um, you know, they didn't know really. They just got uh, the, uh, first mate that was on the bridge at the time I saw coming in on the Carpathia quite quite a lot of him and so he told this other young girl myself quite a few things amongst them that a hundred of the crew had just come on that day they said he was just beginning to learn his way around the ship but well anyway going down they they um we, we we went down. You know, they didn't do they didn't do too good a job. You know, we sort of slid down at all in one end of the boat went down this way instead of straight. Well, that was the only that was a kind of scary. But after that, I just thought, well, this is it. And but then we just thought, well, we decided we wanted to at least catch a go near another lifeboat. And. Uh, so the skipper said, look underneath here, where, underneath where he was, was where I was, uh, see, if you can't, see if you can't find a, a flares. There were no flares. He said, see if there was, there was no water. I, he said, see if there's, you know, water or any of them. No, there was nothing. There was nothing there. So finally somebody burned a hat. Just oh. trying to attract it. I mean, anything to keep, you know, let, uh, just to keep occupied. Let me ask you a question at this point. Um, this, you mentioned the burning of the hat. Um, I know Mr. Lord has already proved himself inaccurate on one point, most notice, notably the chicken sandwich. Uh, according to his account, you were in lifeboat eight, and in lifeboat eight there was a woman by the name of White who had a cane with a built-in electric light that she waved around. Was that really your boat? Don't remember, no. I don't think so. And also, no. there was a lady, a Countess of Rolfs, who ran the tiller, who steered that. No. And then in other words, you were not no. in the lifeboat no. that Mr. Lord no. says that you were in. Well, I was not in the lifeboat with that. No. The lady did that. Um, and I was, as I say, I was right next to the skipper, and I was, so I was the one that he and I looked down for these things that weren't there. And somebody did burn burn a hat. Well, we thought we I think we saw the we thought we saw, and I guess it was the 
the California. Mm -hmm. We thought we saw a light. It was stronger. The, the starlight, stars were so bright, and they came down on the horizon so far that, that they might have been ships. You couldn't see it. There wasn't a sign of, a, uh, of a, an iceberg that you could see when we were out in the ocean. But we, so we tried kind of just to have some kind of an idea of something to think about. We started for this light. Well, then, then along then we got all excited and thought we saw a sailing vessel. This was, I suppose, five o'clock in the morning. It happened. I don't know what time we got off. Maybe midnight. We were out on the in the boat. Were you on six one hours. of the first or last boats to leave the ship? Well, I wouldn't say. I don't have any idea. That would be very difficult for me to say. We weren't. Well, we were. I don't know how many boats were there. Do you know? There were uh, sixteen regulation boats, and then there were the four collapsible boats. Yeah. Well, I think I, I would say that we were on about the middle, mm. in the in a lifeboat. And, uh, well, anyway, so we, we uh, were sort of thinking about heading for that light. And then just around, just dawn, we thought we saw maybe a freighter. Well, that turned out to be an iceberg. That was the first iceberg we saw. It looked like a big sail of a ship from the distance, you know. So then... Uh, well, a little short, not long after we saw that, that kept us occupied. It gave us something to think about for a while. And, and then finally, the, uh, we saw, the, of course, they put fireworks off on the ship. We saw that. Then, we, uh, then finally, the Carpathia came into view. And uh, we began to see we saw it coming, and we began to see other boats all heading. Of course, we headed toward it. And uh, then we began to see a few other lifeboats heading the same way. And we, when we got there, it was, getting, it was getting a little bit rough at that time. And uh, I think, that, I think our, the sailors, I think, had a... a a flask or something in their pockets because they, I think they had imbibed a little bit and lost oars. They lost two oars and overboard. But anyway, when we, by the time we got up to the side of the boat, uh, people were scared. They were, they were kind of scared to go up. They, you know, they let down a rope. Yes, there's a... Uh, with a sling on the bottom of it. Yes. So anyway, I, being the youngest member, excepting a baby that was on the boat, uh, I was. So I went up first. I always like to do things like that. Anyway, that was just me for me. But so I went up. My mother, who was in those days, women were. She was younger than I am now, but she, you know, she was. She never was athletic or anything like that. And she was. I considered her a very, very ancient lady. Well, anyway, everybody had to be pulled up. And uh, the, the doctor on the Carpathia met, was there to meet everybody as they were taken in, the, where they take the luggage, usually. And, uh, and I must say that Captain Rolstrom was a, he was a great hero. He's a marvelous, he did the most 
miraculous job. Well, I think there's 700 people extra on that boat. I didn't think they could get everybody on. Didn't look very big after the Titanic. But, uh, <clears throat> well, anyway, then I went to my mother to find a place. Some people, people were very nice and offered, some people offered to, uh, to have my mother in with them in a cabin. And I don't, I don't remember what happened to Miss Shute, where she was. I guess she roamed around the way I did. I mean, I just, uh, and I uh, saw, I thought of people that I knew. I, there was a young man I'd met, I thought it was, that I thought was pretty nice that I'd met on board, and I asked about him, and he turned out to be something. Anyway, I won't, I'm not going to go into that story. But uh, then I spent the first night, oh, I've, then in the afternoon, that afternoon, I, I was sat down, I was another, a young girl my age, the only girl and the only person really my age on board, at least that I knew. I didn't know her before, but a young, she was on her honeymoon, returning from her honeymoon, Mrs. Marvin, I think her name's mentioned. Yes, Mrs. Daniel Marvin. Yeah. She lost her husband. Her, she lost her husband. She was very young. Mrs. Her mother was Madame Farquharson, who was a very top dressmaker in New York. And so I'd never known her before, but we were sort of, you know, the same age. And I, I, I think I saw her husband in a boat. I, that an awful lot of people died, you know, exposure. Mm. And some of the boats that I watched come up after I got on board, you know, there'd be people just, people that had been just dead, really, from exposure, lying in the, mm. in the bottom of the boat. But, uh, well, I don't know whether I did swim or not. I thought maybe I did. But anyway, I, so I was with her most of the time. She and I sort of went around together, and, and I tried. We tried to say that, well, the other boats will pick up people. And uh, well, anyway, that we. So I went down the first the afternoon. Somebody sent me down to a cabin. There was a French woman on board, who was really hysterical, and there were two young French children. That's, I think that's in those, one of those books. Is that Madame de Villiers? Probably. And she was hysterical. She was the, there was one French woman who was so hysterical that she was screaming for her son, who wasn't even on the Titanic. She was screaming for her husband, because I heard her. I was in the room with her when she was screaming for mon mari, mon mari. That's not, apparently not the same woman. Well, I'm sure it's the no. same woman. Well, but anyway. She was traveling alone in well, anyway, she wasn't. She was traveling with a very wealthy American man, which I heard later on when I was in Paris. Ah. But anyway, that's neither here nor there. She was Madame Somebody. And um, but but uh, anyway, she was she was hysterically saying she was down in this cabin, and I don't know why I found myself there, and a couple of people trying to quiet her down. And saying that, well, you're married, they picked some, another boat's picked your Mary up. Well, that was just maybe I spent a couple of hours down there. And then uh, uh, 
then they gave her the two children to look after it. I think there were two French children. That sort of diverted her. I remember that. I don't remember the children now, but they, anyway, they, there were two children, young children that I think were left, their parents were lost. I've forgotten, but anyway, they put, put them in charge of her. And then the first night, I slept out on deck in a deck chair right next to Colonel Gracie, who wrote the first book. Yes. And really, it was the cause of his death, I'm sure, because that was... That was he was one of the last people off. What? He was one of the last oh, yes, people he, off. Oh, uh, yes. Well, that was, very, that was very interesting. I mean, I heard all of his story from him during the night. And uh, he, uh, he said that he was on a, he was in a, on a, on a raft. Hmm. He went down with the ship. And I asked him if it was true about the orchestra playing... Uh, was it nearer my God to thee, wasn't it? And he said, yes, that that was true. And he went down with the ship, and he was blown up. Well, there was an explosion when the ship went down, and the explosion blew him up. And he was, then he was picked up on a lifeboat, life raft. And he said there were 36 people to begin with on the life raft. Uh, and in the morning, there were only six left because of exposure, a life raft, the water would you know, go over. And there was a, uh, a I, I think, I'm not sure whether it's Mr. and Mrs. Hill, Canadians, I think, that had, a young, had several children. In fact, their baby, young child, I don't know what, a year, six months, a year old, something like that, the nurse were in, in my boat. But they put the baby in the nurse, then the mother was with them, and she said, no, she was going to go. She wasn't going to go. She was going back to find her husband, to, uh, uh, who had another little older child with that him. That was Mr. and Mrs. Allison, I believe. What? Mr. and Mrs. Allison? Well, I don't, I, I don't know. I no. get mixed up. Because hmm. I know the Hills were one, some of the people that were on. But, but anyway, whoever they were, they, she went back. And so then she and her husband and the child were uh, on, taking on this lifeboat, on the left raft with, Mr., with Colonel Gracie. And they were, well, they just, they, of course, they were covered with water and they just froze to death, really. I mean, they just weren't there in the morning. As they said, only six people left on the raft. And, uh, then, then uh, I saw. Uh, I I went. I just went down to see. Of course, Mr. Ismay. Every he never even appeared. He wouldn't dare appear. And I I just this young, other young young bride and myself. As I say, the mate used to come up. You know, he was wandering around too, so he used to come up to talk, I suppose, to just two young girls. And he was on, he was on the bridge when it happened, of course the captain was not. And I said to him, he said, I said, he said he saw the iceberg a mile ahead. 
Now, this is what he told us. I don't know how the thing came out. Uh, he saw it ahead, and I said, well, why didn't you turn around or put, stop the ship? And he said, it takes three miles to stop a ship. I think they were going hell-bent, probably, because they were told to go. They wanted to make time. Now, that's all Mr. Ismay's fault. And... Uh, uh, so he figured, of course, most of the icebergs are underwater anyway. And, uh, but he figured that if he put on full, if they, full speed, they'd graze it. Like, you know, in a car, you've, sometimes it's better to put on full speed and get away than to slow up. Well, then they hit it, really, in, in just about the only really vital spot. And, uh, and it, wasn't a, it wasn't a terrible bump. It really wasn't, but it, it apparently just tore out that the vital spot that they couldn't, couldn't shut it off. And uh, he, he told us some other things, which I don't think I'll repeat. I, I don't think I want to say, because I don't... Do you want to repeat them for the benefit of your children and I can edit it out? What? Would you like to repeat it so that your children will have it and I can just edit that right out of the tape that we use on the air? Well, no, I don't think it's a, I don't think. It's kind of gruesome. Well. I mean, I don't, I don't know, and I don't know whether that ever came out in, in the, I don't believe it did come out in the, in the, the book. What was the last book? What, Jeffrey Marcus's book? I, I don't know what voyage. his name was. He was a, a naval officer. That's right. A maiden voyage was its title. Was that the maiden voyage? Are you sure? Yes. It was came out about two years ago. That's right. Well, and that was a, that was of course that that was a, a authentic and and well, I think the other book was was really quite good too. Well, anyway, we they, then we sent we all went down. We were told that we could send uh, cables to the uh, shore the family so I sent a cable but and my poor father was frantic he was the head of the American can company and he was he never went home he stayed in his office for the first all those day three days coming in three nights and they got they got a, the message came with mr. mr. Graham too so they didn't know whether whether it was my mother or me or not and uh, well, anyway, we we uh, we were always. Oh, I didn't tell you this part. That, uh, <clears throat> on the on board, on coming in, some friends that I'd met uh, on board, Mr. Uh, 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 Mr. A Swedish gentleman. Mr. Stefanson, I don't. Well, I think he had an interview. I'm sure with, with. Uh, well, anyway, he and he, and uh, Mr. Warner was an Englishman. But uh, they were more or less. They they got, they jumped overboard as the ship went down, and they were picked up by a lifeboat, and they said that. Uh, when they were they were going around, they were the ones that were responsible. They said they met the captain on the promenade deck when the orders were to to go to the promenade deck, and they said, "For God's sake, captain, that it's enclosed." He said, "Oh yes, he." So 
was. He had forgotten it. So that's when the orders were changed. Now, these two men are the ones that told me that, that they had seen the captain. But, and um, they also had seen Mr. and Mrs. Strauss, who said and they wanted them to get off. And they said no, they lived their life, and they, that all came out mm. in the books. Were you by any chance present when uh, that famous exchange was between Mr. and Mrs. Strauss occurred, or were you no. already in? No, no, I, no, I didn't know them at all. Mm. I didn't, I didn't even see them. No, but this, uh, these, this friend of mine told, told me that, that he'd met, he'd run into them that night. And they, then they were picked up, as I say, by a lifeboat. And the captain, Captain Smith, uh, swam over to the lifeboat. I guess he went down to the ship and, uh, with a child. He had life preserved and they wanted to pull him into the lifeboat, and he said no, and he put the child in the boat and took his life preserver off and went down, because he never would have lived that down, not being home. Now the young, young man or he wanted to prove that, that it wasn't the captain's fault. I mean, that I don't know why. Oh, he said, somebody said, oh, I know, he said he had heard that the ship was on fire. As a matter of fact, it was supposed to have been on, according to him, it was supposed to have been, the fire was supposed to have been right under where my state room was. And I said, there certainly was no sign of any fire, which I'm sure there wasn't. Might have been later on, but certainly not at the time. So he was uh, anyway. I that's, that's what he told me, and I said, "Well, I don't think you, uh, I don't think you you can. After all, the captain of a ship is supposed to be on deck when something on the bridge when something's going. There are icebergs and things around, and I don't think you can exonerate him. But I wasn't going to." I didn't want to interview him anyway, but uh, so we we um, we arrived. The family uh, met us with the doctor, but of course we were perfectly perfectly all right. I I wasn't um, extraordinarily enough. I never. I there was no there was no panic. There's no it was just as quiet as anything. And the ship wasn't, the, the night lights were on, just the night lights in the corridor. There was no alarm. Tell me, there's um, one thing that many survivors, two things that many survivors remark on, according to what I've read. The first is that when the ship went up to take the final plunge, that the noise was absolutely deafening. Do you remember that? Well, I don't remember that. We couldn't hear. I think we were far enough away so. We, well, you could hear it, but it, but you could hear the sound of the engines, you know, coming loose from their supports yeah. and breaking glassware. And well, I'm perfectly sure, but we were further. We were uh, away, further away. We were so far away that we couldn't hear that too much. We could hear it, certain amount, but not not ear splitting. 
We could hear people crying, or you know, calling out in the in the water. And the uh, second thing that many survivors remark on was the fact that there were. If you, have you ever read Marcel Proust? Have you ever read any no. of his books? Well, he refers to um, what he calls memory blocks, and that is that there are certain things that one will taste or hear or yeah. see that will jog back a whole area of their of a person's memory or bring yeah. back an entire feeling. And some survivors have remarked that there are certain pieces of music that they will hear or uh, certain tastes of the life, certain uh, incidents that will yeah. bring back their memories and also that they complained of nightmares about it. Oh, that I've had that. Oh, no, I have, I have, uh, my nightmare is always something to do with the being on a ship and wondering why I'm on and I want to get off. Of course, I've been, I have been uh, on many ships since then. <laughs> and uh, the next, um, the next time I went abroad on a ship was on my honeymoon, which was two years later. And we had, uh, we had quite an unfortunate experience then, my husband and I, crossing the channel, that was. We went ashore. When I made him go up and stand right, I made him go right up and stay in the pouring rain. It was very foggy. And stand in the pouring rain by a lifeboat till the, finally things lit up. You could hear foghorns all around them, all around us. Well, anyway, I've had quite a career, Annie. I've had a great many things happen to me, unexpectedly. I think it, it, it be, is in, interesting. I think it's quite interesting that this that I did see a fair amount of the, the of the first mate that was on the bridge when it happened. Do you by any chance remember what his name was? Has the vaguest idea. I don't know anybody's name. Well. Um... But I don't, I don't, but that'll be in the book, that's in the books. Yes, I just, I just was curious if you remembered which mate it was that you were speaking with. No, he was, he was the one, and she was the, the first mate, he was the man in charge on the bridge. I don't know what his name was. I could almost see him now, but I, I don't, I have the vaguest idea of his name. Well, um. And I don't know, I'd, I'd even forgotten, I had to think a lot to find out, to, to remember Mrs. Marvin's name. Have you uh, kept up with that? No, I never have seen anything of her since. Were there... Um, she married again, I heard. Were there any well-known passengers in your lifeboat that you remember? Any of them? No, I don't really. I don't really remember. I don't. I don't think I knew. There was nobody that I knew in the lifeboat. My mother was up in the front. Miss Schutz was somewhere in the boat. I don't know where. And I was back, as I say, next to the skipper. But you were in the same lifeboat. We were in the same Ms. lifeboat. Schultz. Yes. Yeah. Um, and then I, of course, Mr. Roebling was very sad. I was the last person to see Mr. Roebling. Uh, who was an engineer, and as I say, he had been down and he really knew the seriousness of, of the thing. You know, lots of people didn't believe it was serious. And uh, he, uh, so when he left me, he went, he went off to find his friend. Was that Mr. Case by any chance? I don't know what his name was. I've forgotten his name. 
I've forgotten his name, but he was traveling with Mr. Robley. And uh, I, of course I'd met him, but I don't remember his name. And so he would, when I, I saw him, I was the last person to see him. So I went, I, when I got back, I went down to see his family. And, um, and also I was the last person to see Mr. K Mr. Case, who was the Englishman that joined us. It said we'd better go up to the lifeboat. Yes. And his family lived in England. Mr. Robley, he said goodbye and, and went off to find his friend. But Mr. Case was there. And uh, as far as I know, I think, I think I was the last person to see, I mean, that, that survived to have seen either one of them. And I went to see both of their families when I went back to England. I saw Mr. Case's family. Uh, but I don't know, Mother, Mother, but I don't know how she happened to get up. She, she just, I think she was so, she got so nervous that I don't know what she, what, I think she just sort of lost. She'd forgotten, I guess, that she told Mr. Roebling to, that she'd be in a certain spot. So, as I say, we, we went around the ship. Uh, well, I'd say we were a good hour. We almost, we, we walked around the ship looking for my mother. So therefore we had a chance to, to really see how, but it was very quiet. And I don't, I've, I've often wondered, I don't think, does anybody ever mentioned about whether any of the steerage got off? Uh, the survival rate amongst the steerage passengers was not as high as, as in the other classes. Uh, the women and children doctrine, you know, the women and children first doctrine was applied pretty thoroughly to the first class passengers. Yeah. Evidently there were only four first class women who did not survive and three of them apparently survived but apparently drowned by choice. There was Mrs. Strauss, there was Mrs. Allison, who stayed with her husband, yeah. and then there was Edith Evans, the unmarried woman in her 20s who let another woman go into the last lifeboat because the other woman had children. Oh, well, I didn't know. She, now, she was somebody that was around my age, but I don't, I don't recall her at all. But after all, we were only on that boat for, I guess it was the third day out, wasn't it? Fourth, I think, fourth or fifth, something Was it? It's the fourth day out. It's the fourth night. Yeah. Sunday night, I think. Yes. I think it was a Sunday night. Um, but it, it's... Uh, and you know, I think, I think the thing that is, it's incredible to believe that it's only by the merest chance that the Carpathia got that message. Because as you know, up until that time, the... the, the uh, uh, wireless operators uh, went off duty at I don't, I don't know whether it was eleven o'clock, ten o'clock at night, and the uh, the wireless operator was the only reason he happened to be in his wire room or whatever you call it was because he had been trying to send a message all day to. Uh, to get a message in, and he hadn't been able to do it, and he stayed overtime to, in order to get that message through that he'd been trying to get through all day. And it was just by mere chance 
by the grace of God, really, that he happened to be there to get the message. And, uh, and of course, I, that they've, I, I never knew whether the, the, we thought we saw the, that light with the cow, the, um, the other ship. California. California. But I guess it was the California. I guess it was a ship. We weren't, we weren't sure whether it was or not, but we thought it might be. The light. But I, I don't know. It's amazing to think that I, I, and I'm not sure of this. I'm not sure at all of that. But I seems to me, seems to me, and I was told this. I wouldn't know otherwise. That the uh, that our stewardess was the only stewardess that was saved. Now I don't believe that's true. Well, I don't know. I I don't believe that's true, but I know my, I, that uh, uh, my mother, of course, it was the one that she got Miss Shoots up. She went over to her, found her room, got her up. And I don't know, the stewardess's room wouldn't be near enough anyway, but, but I don't know how I got that impression. That might be in my imagination.